Thanks, Dave. Well, it's good to see everybody today. Um, and thanks for that, Dave. The uh, that, That's going to actually pick up, that quote's going to pick up on some of the themes I'm going to talk about today. So I love the way God works in mysterious ways, right? So uh, I'm going to start with a question, which is, what kind of future do you want? I don't know if you've thought about that much. When I was in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, I didn't think about that much. I, uh, when I was 24, I moved to the Chicago suburbs. I started a new job in banking. I had my first child. I bought my first house. I went from two incomes to one income. I had a two and a half hour round trip commute every day. And I started night school at University of Chicago. I had three kids by the time I was 30. I got transferred to London at 31, back to Chicago at 33. The job responsibilities were increasing, travel increased. And I was busy. I was on overload. I measured my success as a husband and a father based on how hard I was working and how well I was providing. And those aren't very good metrics to measure those, uh, those two things. So uh, that began to change a bit when I uh, turned 54 and had my first heart attack. For those of you that haven't heard my story. So I've had a few heart attacks. And once I uh, had that heart attack, the dominant thought going through my mind when I was laying on that gurney gasping for breath with an oxygen mask and I was being rolled into the cath lab and didn't know if they were going to have to open me up was obviously I thought about my loved ones. I didn't think at all about anything that was left at the office. I didn't fear death. I was secure in my faith. Um, I didn't think about my material possessions at all. The dominant thought that went through my mind was that I hadn't poured enough wisdom into the lives of the kids. And that was probably because you know, I wasn't around a lot during their formative years. And uh, so there was more work to be done. So I uh, started sending them a bunch of information, the occasional TED talk, the occasional sermon, the occasional verse of scripture, the occasional quote. Then I had a second heart attack uh, when I was 57. And uh, I decided I better put all this together in one place. So I wrote a book for my kids. And so, um, you know, I had to answer the question, what's most important in life, which really got to the, what kind of future do I want? What do I want to leave behind for my kids? What, what should the priorities in my life be? And I decided that, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to retire and I started planning for that. And I went and I, I met with probably 20 guys that had retired in their life. I figured I've never retired before. What do I know about retirement? I read three or four books that were great about that transition in life, but I really wanted to get other men to pour into me. What are, what are the lessons they've learned? So I encourage you guys, if you're ever making big decisions to seek out wise counsel, that's one of the beautiful things about NCS. And one of the great things about being here is you, you can actually process stuff and think about stuff, which as I think back in my 20s and 30s, I had, I had the awful combination of, of thinking I knew everything and being totally clueless about pretty much everything. 
So, uh, so three of the guys I met with told me that I should go through a program called the Halftime Fellows. And uh, that is a program that was started by Bob Buford. He wrote a book called Halftime. They uh, put you in a cohort of, for me, it was six guys. You gather together once a quarter uh, during the year. So you, you meet four times, two to three days per time. They give you a coach that you meet with one-on-one -on -one each month and you have group calls with other people that have gone through the program and it was a wonderful program and they start with asking you the question to get to dave's eulogy virtues what are the five things you want someone to say about you at your 80th birthday party that's the polite way of asking Stephen Covey's question in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Which, you know, I started thinking about myself. And the good news is Jesus uh, gave us the answer to the question of where do we find our best life? You know, if you, if you turn to Matthew 22, 34 to 39, the great commandment where he was asked by the Pharisees, what... What's the number one thing I need to know about life? What's the most important commandment? And you know, his answer that we all know is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the second is like it. Uh, in the New Living Translation, the, the second is equally important, so it's a tie for first place. And if you go to Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus basically is teaching that the way you love the people in this world that need the most amount of health is the way you're really going to love me. So obviously we can love God by getting to know him, reading his word, being in communication with him, praying with him, praising him. But if you look throughout the Bible, particularly towards the end of his life, his whole message was about love. And it wasn't about chasing the things of this world. So you know, let me ask you a question. How do you define success? How will you define success in life? And you don't have to look very far. You know, if you study the life of Steve Jobs or you look at Olympian Michael Phelps or Tiger Woods or Tom Brady to see that there's plenty of poster children out there that the things of this world will not satisfy. And in my career, I got to do a lot of business with a lot of people that were very successful by worldly standards. And most of them measured their self-worth by their net worth. And that's kind of the number one bit of advice I tell people not to do uh, when they're in their career. I fortunately never made any career decisions based on money. I, mean, I was blessed to be in a great career. Uh, it had its cost, obviously, in terms of not having a ton of control over my schedule, at least so I thought. So they asked us this question for me. I went to that Matthew 22 verse and the answer was pretty simple. So follower of Jesus would be number one, uh, loving and faithful husband, number two, admired and respected father and grandfather was number three for me. A faithful and available friend was number four and generous to those uh, in need was number five. And I fall far short on all of these but one of the things they had us do was, okay, if those are your five, let's take an assessment, how you're doing, and what are the things you need to do to get from where you are today 
to where you want to be at the end of your life? And what are some concrete steps you can take in the next year to kind of take a step in the right direction? And who are people that can help you with that? So the word intentionality comes to mind. A lot of you might think this is a little prescriptive and it, it was way too prescriptive. But if, if you think back, my life was, I was floating in the river of the culture and life and just responding to what life was throwing at me without little regard to where am I going? And so I do think it's important for all of us to take a step back and say, where do we wanna go? And what do we need to do to get there? And who can help us? And who can encourage us? us, And who can hold us accountable on that journey? So, um, you know, at the, this is a busy time of year. This was the time of year we always did business reviews at, at, at the office. We did individual reviews, 360 reviews, budgets, plans for next year, where we asked the question, how did the year go? What did we think? The year was going to be like how is it actually what were we surprised by uh, what were our great accomplishments during the year where did we fall short what kind of environment are we going to find ourselves in next year and someone had mentioned to me well if that's good in the business world why isn't it good in our personal lives you know i never really did that year-end review of you know how, how did the year go what did i really want and not from an accomplishment and a striving perspective, but really from a relational perspective. You know, put the business stuff aside, but how did I do as a husband? And we would do 360 reviews. And so one of my challenges to all of you is, you know, look at the key relationships in your life and your roles as husbands, fathers, sons, brothers, friends, coworkers, uh, volunteers, lover of your neighbor how did I do and actually have that conversation it takes a little courage to sit down with your wife and say I want to love you well how did I do this year and I want to really think about how I can do better next year do you have any feedback or advice for me and how are we doing and one of the things they had us do which was really hard for me and almost impossible for my wife is they say everyone everyone's going to be gifted 168 hours a week and how do you want to spend your time in an ideal week and uh that was really really difficult exercise but if you don't have a target you're not going to hit it right but it, it at least fosters that conversation and and they encourage you to share that with all your constituents you know, I want to be a better dad. How can I be a better dad? Going to your kids and saying, you know, the Bible says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Can you guys tell me when I exasperated you? Because, you know, I might want to explain why I did what I did, because maybe there was good reason. And I might need to apologize for doing some things that I didn't do well. And so it just fosters this level of intimacy and conversation that you can have and think about, at least think about what really matters in life. So that's my point number one. The others will be shorter. Point number two is, you know, Jesus answers this question of um, what makes the abundant life and it's love. 
And it's not love the noun, the emotion, it's love the doing, which requires sacrifice. It requires patience to people who are obnoxious. It requires acceptance. It requires work. You know, if you want a good life, if you want to be good at anything, it usually takes hard work, sacrifice, discipline. And that's the case with life. So your best life is not going to be on the easiest path. And so my second point is the, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the name of the book that I, I wrote for my kids is The Narrow Gate, and it's from Matthew uh, 7, 13, and 14. It basically says, you know, the easy road's going to lead you to, your, to destruction and a tough and bad life. And your best life is going to be on the narrow path. And it's going to be hard work. And so, you know, my second point is, you know, don't just listen to the word of God, James 1.22, and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. And it's very simple, right? And I learned that message when I went through a divorce uh, at the age of 42. My pastor walked with me, called me every day for six months, and he, I had to spill my guts to him. I, for, for this whole thing to work, I had to just tell him, you know, here's what I'm feeling today. Here's what's happening today. And some days, you know, one day he called me and said, you're being trampled on. You need to set boundaries. I'm coming over. I'm going to give you the book boundaries and you got to read that book. Um, another day he's like, you know, I just heard you say something bad about your wife. Guard your tongue. You know, the Bible says, love your enemy. It's three words. I've read it thousands of times. But in the middle of my circumstances, when it was love your wife who's filed for divorce, who's blowing up your marriage, who's going to take half your net worth. Uh, yeah, that, that's the one I want you to love today. And my pastor says, yes, you have to love her and you have to forgive her. You don't have to like her, but you've got to love her. And, uh, and you have to pray for her. You, you need to pray that God would bless her. I, I initially forgave her, and my tagline was, yeah, I forgive you. And in the back of my head, I was thinking, I, and I hope you have a miserable life. And my daughter decided to not speak to her. And one of my greatest accomplishments in life as I stand here today is my daughter and my former wife have a spectacular relationship. And I spent a year and a half plus telling my daughter, you know, you have to have a relationship with your mom it's best for you and it's biblical you're supposed to honor your parents you're supposed to forgive people that hurt you if you have issues with her you know have a relationship talk about them together and so you know uh just praying that god would bless my former wife and it was a very very painful divorce it was a very painful season and my faith really grew because uh, this guy, John Bell, poured into my life and he poured in truth and he poured in scripture and he poured in practical advice in the midst of my messy circumstances. And that's why I'm like, you know, this Bible thing is pretty darn good. It gives you really good advice. And a lot of the things it instructs us to do, we don't want to do. We don't feel like doing. And so uh, point number two is is to really just do what the bible says be in the word and uh, i've been introduced to something called public reading a scripture uh, you can find it on prsi.org 
it's a dramatization of the Bible. And I find it so much easier to read the Bible when someone's reading it to me in a dramatized fashion. And uh, my, my consumption of, of, of the word has increased significantly. So be in the word and just do what it says, point number two. Point number three uh, is don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. And it's, you know, the, the Surgeon General in May uh, issued the fact that this country has a new epidemic called loneliness. So if you look at all the trends of the world, they play right into everything NCS is. You know, there's no truth out there. People are confused as to how to live their life, get close to Jesus, friendship with Jesus. And isolation is a big, big problem out there. My new favorite quote is pain shared is divided and joy shared is multiplied. So why wouldn't you share life with other people? And, you know, this is why I like the energy groups and people have different comfort levels. But, you know, the goal here is to share everything about your life uh, with people. And I, 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 if you'd have asked me in my 20s and 30s, do you have a lot of friends? I would have said, yeah. And I did. I had a lot of buddies. I had a lot of acquaintances. But here's what I know. Get together with guys. I, I'd go golfing with a guy. I'd get home. My wife would say, what's new with Jim? And I'd say, Jim shot an 82. <laughs> and uh, no, no, no. But what's really going on in his life? Well, he went to the Bears game on, on uh, last Sunday, you know. So we don't get deep, we don't get real. So without this level of intentionality, so I've started with, uh, you know, I got an energy group that meets Tuesday mornings at 7.15 Eastern. So that's 6.15 when I'm in Chicago. And I've got my college friends that I started. And, you know, it's interesting, my college friends, one of them is, uh, is, is not a believer. And, uh, you know, we still, we just get on the, we do life together. And, you know, it's interesting that took a little time for people to get used to, to spill their guts. Cause we live in this world where you're going to put the facade up and, uh, and just pretend everything's okay. You know, that's our, that's our answer. How, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, yeah, we sent out the perfect Christmas cards, uh, as a family when the foundation was crumbling and, uh, you know, we live in this world where everyone, uh, is playing make believe and, you know, one of the things I've learned in, in being around guys is um, they fall usually skew in one of two directions, sometimes both of these directions, which might surprise you. But one is shame. And shame's that lie that tells you if people really knew you, they might not like you. And the other's pride, which, you know, 90% of people think they're more moral than the average person. And those of you that uh, know math know that that's an impossible, well, it's not impossible, but um, it's probably not accurate. You know, people have an inflated view of themselves. Well, at least I'm better than others. We, and shame. And we always compare our lives to the people that live in the big houses on the water. And we don't think about all the people that are hurting. And we know that in this room today, there are guys going through some very, very difficult Things. So I'm going to finish with a, uh, a quote, which is not a short quote, so I apologize, from our good friend Paul Young. 
Um, and uh, maybe this will challenge you a little bit. I thought he is so good with his words. And uh, he's got, for those of you that know, don't know Paul Young, he wrote The Shack. And he, uh, his parents were missionaries. And he was brought as a child into, I think it was Papua New Guinea. It might have been another part of New Guinea, but into the into tribal culture to be a missionary. He was sexually abused at the age of five. And then he was sent to Christian boarding school where he was sexually abused at the age of six and seven. And then as an adult, he, as a Christian, he acted out on that and had an affair on his wife and his life turned totally upside down. And he talks openly about all the work that he's done. And his wife asked him to write a book for the family and it was titled The Shack. And, and the message was that we keep this facade up and play make-believe and we keep our secrets. So here's how he describes The Shack. And I'll finish with this. So The Shack represents the human heart, the uniquely crafted soul that can so easily be torn from its moorings and left to flounder in the waves of a storm-tossed world. Here we stored our addictions and hid our secrets. It was the house of shame and pain held together by a webbing of lies and protected by an ever-growing array of survival skills and defense mechanisms. Why do we keep our secrets? Mostly because we are terrified of losing control, of losing the little bits and scraps of acceptance and approval that we have managed to scrape together through production and performance. The irony is that relationships will bring us healing, but we don't trust them. When someone comes into our lives and they offer genuine love, acceptance, forgiveness, grace, the very things that would heal our hearts, we don't believe them because they don't know our secrets. We are trapped and as sick as the secrets we keep. So what do we do? we find a way to survive. We look for ways to kill the pain while maintaining the facade. If exhaustion and the praise of performance don't kill the pain, we will find other things that will, like prescription drugs, alcohol, pornography, and affairs. And that's, I think, stories that we've heard over and over from men before they found freedom in the safe environment of NCS where they could share their stories and they can realize, I guess I'm not alone. I guess I'm not alone in my struggles. I guess I'm not alone in, you know, struggling with various aspects of life and, you know, mental health. I've gotten involved with a bunch of mental health initiatives since I've retired. And, you know, it's so sad to hear these stories of suicide where people just give up hope. And when I think back on my life and I think of the greatest growth that I've experienced personally, it's usually through those seasons of challenge and difficulty and pain. Um, God uses, God does not waste our pain. God will use it to transform us for good. You know, we, we welcome guys here that are just uh, struggling. And our goal is to love on them, get them on their feet, encourage them. And time will pass and a new season will come. And then those guys are now equipped to walk alongside the next guy that walks through the door that might be struggling and in a lot of pain. So I get a lot of calls from guys that are going through divorce and it's a joy to walk with them.
It were the worst, they were the worst days of my life. They were, they were just awful. Um, but I am who I am today because I went through it. I'm a better husband today because I was not a great husband in my first marriage. As I prayed for my wife, for God to bless my wife, it was interesting. My heart softened and God started to show me, you know, the things that I contributed to that failed marriage. You know, I don't care what the circumstances are. There are usually two, two uh, guilty parties in every failed marriage. And uh, so I got a sense to see that and learn from it. So I'm gonna give you a few questions to think about today. Um, number one, if you gave yourself a self-appraisal for 2023, what would be two positives and two opportunities for improvement in your role as husband, father, son, brother, friend, coworker, and volunteer? Number two, how do you define success in your life? And what would your calendar and checkbook, how would your calendar and checkbook answer that question? for you and what obstacles are holding you back from that definition of success that you have. So the, anything around that question of what kind of future do I want or how will I define success in life? And then three, as you reflect on your life, which people, events, experiences, and information have had the greatest influence on who you are today and why? So hopefully that'll give you plenty to chew on at your table time. So. <laughs> what? We could spend all day. <laughs> yeah, right? So pick, pick one of those questions and uh, yeah. Anyway, great to be with you guys. Thanks.